0: This sermon has a text, and I'd like for you to turn to it. It's the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. And begin reading at verse 12. I have just a little bit of a feedback, not much, but some. The 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning at verse 12. This is my commandment. That you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This I command you that you love one another. Now Jesus never makes a command except that he has already given the ability to do it. So that whatever Jesus commands that is at the same time his promise that you can. Every promise then of Jesus, every command of Jesus is a promise. Now that sounds good until it's tested, and believe me, it's tested in this text. Love one another. Somebody said, when I read that and heard Jesus say, love one another, I wondered if Jesus knew the folks that I know. Um, To live in love with the saints above, brother, that'll be glory. But to live below with some of the saints I know, well, that's another story. And some of you might be saying, that's good church talk and I take my hat off to the people who can do it, but there are some people that I just cannot love. And yet Jesus said, I command you that you love one another and every promise, every command of Jesus is His promise that you can. Perhaps part of the problem is in our understanding of what He means by love. Frederick Speakman in his little book, Love is Something You Do, tells about when he started out as a young preacher. There was this special place where he kind of liked to go to kind of unload, kind of a sanctuary where two um, spinster um, women lived, elderly women who had never married. And they had his chair, they called it, his chair, end quote. And one day he was sitting in his chair kind of unloading and they were talking about this man in the church that had really been giving him a hard time. I mean, testing his mettle. And he was talking about this man kind of, you know, in a negative way and and then he got a little tinge of conscience and he said, now there I go again. I, I should be ashamed for I know as a Christian I'm to love that man. But how in heaven's name can I love him? And one of the women uh, spoke and said, It sounds like that you expect yourself to be fond of that man. And that's nonsense. And I don't think Christ is interested in nonsense. Fondness and affection for people can be cultivated, but cannot at will be turned on and off like a faucet. Christian love, she said, is much different than that. If Christ expects me to love that man... It will not be as a matter of emotion, but as a matter of principle. What if Christian love never, was never meant to begin in how you feel about someone? And does Christ expect us to sit around trying to force or to manufacture a warm fondness for those who rub us and dig us all the time? I suppose that there are illustrations that just turn lights on for you and help you understand. One of those, one such illustration is one I've used in light of understanding Christian love. Um, Miller says that he was sitting one day on his front porch watching his little girl ride her tricycle in the driveway. About that time the neighbor's kid appeared. He said, now every time that kid came where I was, my blood pressure went up about 60 points. He said, that's the most obnoxious six-year-old kid I've ever known. Picks his nose and throws rocks at my daughter. And he said, I was sitting there watching my daughter and just feeling this warm love for her. And I saw my neighbor's kid and I immediately, you know, my blood pressure began to rise. He said, as I watched my daughter ride her tricycle up and down the driveway, I got to thinking, I wonder what I would do if my daughter suddenly drifted out in the street and a car was about to run over her. He said, I I, I knew what I would do. I'd jump up from where I was, and I'd go out, I'd throw myself in front of that car and I'd save her. Risk my life, give my life. Then he said, I got to wondering what I would do if my neighbor's kid was in that predicament. And then all of a sudden he said, I realized I would do the same. And then he said, God turned a light on for me about love. He said, I'm absolutely convinced that when they laid Jesus down on that cross and they spat on Him and cursed Him and beat Him and put nails in His hands and mocked Him, that He did not feel this warm, affectionate fondness for those folks who were doing that. He said, as a matter of fact, he didn't feel that way toward his disciples all the time. Sometime he said, you slow to believe, guys, how long is it going to take for you to catch on? But he said, Jesus laid himself down upon that cross and took those nails, not because he felt warm affectionate affection toward them, but because he was willing to act in the way that they needed because he was willing to, to do for them what God would do for them. Any pagan can say, as a matter of emotion, I, I like that man, therefore I'll do good for him. It takes a real Christian who makes the steady use of his Christian resources to say, as a matter of emotion, I dislike him, but I will do good to him because as a Christian, I love him. Well, you see, love is not so much what you feel, it's what you do. That's true in Christian marriage. Occasionally, a couple will come into my office and they'll tell me that they don't love each other anymore. He'll say, I don't love her anymore. She'll say, Something happened along the way, it just ruined my love. I don't love him anymore. And I'll sit down with them and we'll try to find out when that love stopped. And after a while, I say, Oh, I, I see what you mean. You, you, you mean you don't feel the same toward each other anymore. When you're together, the rockets don't go off and the palms don't get sweaty. Does that mean you don't love each other? It would make a farce of marriage to think it means that two mortals can stand before God and, and vow that I'll feel tender and loving toward, we'll feel tender and loving toward each other every moment till death does us part. I mean, emotions come and go and and tenderness has its highs and lows. But at the heart of Christian marriage is the ability for one to stand before God and vow that I will treat this person in a way that I will treat no one else, regardless of the climate of my, emo- my emotion and my affection, and my love will find its measure in the things I do. It would be wonderful if we could feel this warmth toward everybody, this glow toward everybody, and if we were closer to Christ, we probably could feel that more. But isn't it an, the first step in an honest appraisal of Christian love to admit that even though we don't have this glow and this warmth toward everybody, yet our Christian marching orders are to treat them as if we do. And isn't it amazing that oftentimes the emotion follows the action. Uh, isn't it amazing how the world's far- formula, I feel warm toward him, therefore I'll do good to him, finds its reversal in, I'll do good toward him, and as a result of that, I like him. But whether that happens or not, What Jesus said more than anything else is that our love finds its meaning in the things we do. And He gave us a beautiful picture. He said there was the judge in heaven, the judge on the throne at the end of life, and people came before Him to be judged, and He did not say, I was hungry and you felt sorry for me. I was naked and you felt the shame of that with me. I was in prison and the manacles hurt your wrist also. I was sick and you were sympathetic toward me. I mean, that's wonderful, but that's not what adds up. What adds up is this. How many hungry are fed? How many naked were clothed? And how many imprisoned were helped? Jesus is such a realist. He said, do you love people? Then He says, no, no, don't tell me how you feel about them. Tell me what you do about them. And in another place He says, love your enemies. And then He describes what that's like. He gives us a picture of it. He says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who despitefully use you. For love is not what you feel, it's what you do. Now that's the, that's the introduction. Well, let me get to the implications of that. The range of that Christian love is this. That a man lays down his life for his friend. I mean, how far am I to go in Christian love? that a man lays down his life for his friend. For love demands the sacrifice of your life. It involves a sacrifice that's patterned after the sacrifice of Jesus. A group of missionaries from the Far East got together and, and they were discussing in a kind of a, a meeting, a convention, the problems they were having on the mission field. God just wasn't blessing. People were not being saved. God didn't seem to have His hand on their work. In that group of missionaries was William Booth's uh, youngest daughter, the only survivor of the Booth family. Her name was Marichal. After they talked for a while, Marischal said, Gentlemen, how do you spell love? And there was a kind of an embarrassed silence And finally, somebody said, well, you spell love, L-O-V-E. And she said, gentlemen, permit me to spell love for you. You spell love, S-A-C-R-I-F-I-C-E. It was 24 hours before the cross. And the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John says that Jesus, having loved them, loved them to the end, And that word is teleos. It doesn't mean that He loved them till the last day. It means more of perfection. He loved them without imperfection. You know what love that's imperfect is? It's accolades without action. It's platitudes and no provisions. And He loved them perfectly. And so He took a towel and He girded it about Himself and He knelt down and He met their needs. And He got back up and He said... Gentlemen, that's how you're to love somebody, even if it means becoming their servant. And Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, thought it not something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. 24 hours before Calvary, and Jesus said, That's your pattern. In just 24 hours, love was going to nail Jesus to a cross. It led Him down from the throne and closed the gates of glory behind Him for a while. And Jesus said, that's how you're to love others. Love demands denial. Do you like to read the comics? Did you read the one of Andy Cap a few months ago? Andy's... Uh Wife Flo is standing there in the first frame and she's pacing up and down nervously nervously. In the next frame, she's standing there with her arms crossed and, and she says, Three whole days and we haven't spoken to each other. This is this is ridiculous. In the next frame, she goes over to Andy, you know, he's kind of standing there, and she puts her arms around him and she says, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Friends. And Andy kind of shuffles his feet a little bit and he says, okay, friends. The next frame, Andy's putting on his coat and he starts to leave. As he comes by Flo, she reaches out and grabs him and plants a big old wet juicy kiss right on his cheeks. He's kind of he's embarrassed, but he doesn't say anything. He goes on out the door. As he steps out the door, one of his old, his old cronies is waiting on him and he says, I heard that, Andy. It takes a wonderful woman to apologize when she's wrong. In the next frame, Andy looks at his friend and says, yes, and it takes an even more wonderful woman to apologize when she's not. Love doesn't have to have its own way. It doesn't have to always be right. It just has to love. And somehow at the heart of that response, is what Jesus means when he says that we're to love one another even if it means being their servant. That's the range of it. And the reason of that love is in the next verse. He says, Because I have called you friends. He says in verse 15, You're no longer slaves, but you're friends. Now, a slave was the absolute possession of his master. He had no ability to do any, to have anything, to own anything, therefore he had nothing. He did not have the right to, to elect, therefore he did nothing of his own initiative. His life was a life of unquestioning submission and blind obedience. And Jesus said, you're no longer slaves, you're friends. Does that mean that we're no longer servants of God? Doesn't mean that at all. It means that our servanthood is different. Our submission is no longer unquestioned. Our obedience is no longer blind. We serve the Lord because we're His friends. And he says, The basis of that friendship is the revelation, my revelation of the Father. He said, I've made known to you everything the Father does and everything the Father says. Now, what did Jesus reveal reveal to us about God? Well, among other things, the most profound was the revelation of His love. And God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus revealed to us that God loves us. And the result of His love for us is that we love. In fact, John says in another place, we love because He first loved us. The revelation of divine love in all its glory produces love in us. And I'm able to love others because I'm loved. Let me give you a principle that you might write somewhere and remember that grace always puts into us what God wants out of us. Now, if Jesus wants out of us love for another, then how's He going to get that out of us? He's going to put that into us. And how does He put it into us? He does it by loving us. And my love for another is just a response to God's love for me. It's a beautiful thought. Now, let me tell you about something about this love that that God had for me. It was a love that was undeserved. Now, if there ever was anybody, now the folks who know me best can will say amen, if there's ever anybody who's you know, who is unlovable, who is not worthy of love, it's me. And yet God loves me. You know what that means? Jesus said, I want you to love others just as I have loved you without discrimination. In other words, because He loves you just as you are, you can love them just as they are. There are three kinds of love. There is an if love It says, I love you if you'll do this for me. There's a because kind of love that says, because you're beautiful, I love you. Because you do this for me, I love you. Because you're rich, I love you. And then there's an anyhow love that says, I love you anyhow. And God looks at us and He says, I love you anyhow. I look at others and I can say, I love you anyhow. And that's the reason of that love. There's one other thing, please. There is the reward of that love. The reward of that love is found in verse 16. It is, it is this, an abiding fruit, and answered prayer. Love one another, He commands, and then He says, this will be the reward of that remaining fruit and a responding father. I want to take those in reverse and say just something about them just briefly. It means answered prayer. It means a responding father. Could it be possible today that the reason why there is no answer to your prayer, God does not answer, God does not respond to your prayer life, could it be possible that it's because you don't love someone as Christ commanded I know a preacher one night who was on Saturday night getting ready for his sermon on Sunday. And as he tried to pray, he remembered this, this staff member that, that he had not really responded to and loved, not had hadn't really treated as he ought to treat that person. It couldn't get his name out of his mind. I mean, his, his name barricaded itself in this preacher's mind. And finally, because he couldn't pray, heaven was locked up to him. He went to that person's home, sat down, and said, I haven't really been right toward you. I haven't really loved you in Christian love. And I want your forgiveness. That forgiveness was received. And the pastor went back to his study, and he could pray. And the next morning when he preached, God blessed Does it seem like that there is something between you and God? Is it possible that there is a block between your relationship to God? There is something that hinders your prayer life. Could it be possible that it's because there are people in your world that you don't love? It's, it's not here by accident that He says for us to love one another. And in that very context, He says, then whatever you ask of the Father, He'll do it for you. And then there is remaining fruit. I suppose that the thing that haunts, us, haunts people over 40, more than anything else in life, is, is will there be anything left to remember? Remember? I mean, when I crossed the the great divide at 40, I started wondering, you know, I started thinking, will anybody remember what me or am I going to leave anything behind that has any permanence? That's why people rush to get their names on buildings and on street signs and plaques. Because there is this great desire to to know that, that there is something that will outlast them. And you can almost hear that pathos in the, Psalm, in the psalmist in, in Psalm 90. And he says, our life is three score and ten. And if by reason of strength, it'll be 80 years. But our labor and sorrow is soon cut off and we fly away. And then he begins to cry. Establish. It's confirm in the new American standard. It means to make permanent, make permanent the work of our hands, O Lord. And then he says it again, and you can almost see him on his knees. He says it, Make permanent the work of our hands. O Lord, don't let it be that when I die, that'll be all there is. But I can tell you some things. I'll tell you what'll last beyond your life. And that is what you do in love. And sometime you turn to that 13th chapter of love, that love chapter, 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and there is that word, love never faileth. It's a Greek word, means never falls to the ground like a leaf. Everything else will fall, but love will stand. And then he says, now abideth faith, hope, and love. Now the things that are permanent, the things that will last are faith, hope, and love. These remain, and the greatest of these is love. Sometime I take a sentimental journey out to where I was born. My mother now lives in town, but I was raised out on a farm in Knox County, Texas. And we'll get in the car sometime and drive out there. It's about eight miles from town. We sold the farm so it doesn't belong to us anymore, but the man who farms there doesn't mind for us coming out. And so we kind of make a little sentimental journey. It's really kind of sad because everything is different. I mean, the house is gone. I'm, I was literally, literally born in that house, in the in bedroom. My mother delivered me in, a, in the house, didn't have the privilege of being in the hospital. That house is gone. Gone, is those, um, gone are those trees that, that were out back behind our house where I used to, you know, i uh, shoot my air rifle. I had one of those daisy rifles. you carry the BBs in your mouth and spit them down the barrel. You know, one of those single shot jobs. That'll date me. Gone is that orchard where I used to pick fruit. Gone are the barns and all the outbuildings and the grass lawn where I used to get a football and play like I was a Doak walker while I listened to SMU Mustangs play on the radio. All that's gone. Gone is the house where I lived. Gone is the first car that I ever had. I I can remember that old 48 Chevy. It smoked so much, they thought it was a... When I drive through town, they thought they were fogging for mosquitoes, you know, just a trail of smoke. I guess that car has been beaten up and melted down to scrap metal. It's gone. Everything's gone, except, except the love my parents had for me. If I have any love for God today, and I do, I learned to love God first from my mother who folded my baby hands in prayer and pointed me to God. My love for the church, I can't imagine my life without the church. I can't imagine a Wednesday night without church or Sunday night without church. I learned to love the church first from my parents. And my love for God's Word, I learned first from my mother who had a, an old Moffat Bible that she loved to read and read to me. The things that, that they put into my life are gone and I'll never recover them, probably never see them again. But the things that remain are the things they did for me in love. You want something that will outlast The last, Jesus said, Love one another. Love of God, eternal love. Shed your love through me. Nothing less than Calvary love would I ask of thee. Fill me, flood me, overflow me. Love of God, eternal love, shed your love through me. And Jesus said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to love one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have the demonstration of your love. And that you did not just remain in glory and say, I love you, but that you reached out, came down, came among us. Reaching us at the point of our need, doing for us what we needed. Meeting our needs, even though it meant that you had to give up glory. And when you tell us to love others, Father, we we fear that. We, We fall back at that. And yet we know that you would never ask of us, you would never command us, except that we could do it. And I pray, Father, that we'll take action this morning, whatever action, whatever desire. It means that I will love. I will meet human need. I'll respond to human suffering. I'll reach out to those who hurt me. I'll do what God would do. I'll do what they need done. I will love. Bless this word now and and its impact forever. And this inv- invitation on this moment because I pray in Jesus' name and I ask for His sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, look this way. We have three invitations. The first invitation is for those of you who need to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. I know it's hard to step out and come right this, to this place, right before everybody. That's the hardest thing in the world to do We'll meet you down the aisle. We'll have people to come and stand with you. We want you to come and give your heart to Christ. If you'll take that first step, He'll meet you more than halfway. Come to give your heart and life to Jesus, trusting Him for your salvation. Perhaps you need to come this morning and to join the church. God is leading you to place your life in a fellowship of believers to serve God in a local church. Or maybe you just need to come to confess to God your need, your lack of love. Maybe you want to just come and kneel here at the altar and you don't even want to talk to anybody. Just get it straight between you and God. What is God calling you to do? That's the the thing. That's the decision, what God wants you to do. Many of you will come if if you'll do what God wants you to do. I'm sure of it. Now let's stand, and while our choir sings, we invite you to come right now, would you?